Good morning. We welcome you to our Sunday School class, and uh, we invite those listening by way of radio and television to join us here. This is an actual class here at Glen Iris Baptist Church. We meet in the auditorium, and it's so good to see your faces, and then those I can't see. It's good to, to have you with us as well. We're going to begin this morning a study in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you'll find your place just right after the book of Proverbs, you find the little book of Ecclesiastes. There is probably no more confusing or I may not even find the right word to describe it, a book in all the scriptures. It is an unusual book and is written by uh, the, the human author, of course, is Solomon, uh, who wrote the Proverbs and all the wisdom that we've seen in those uh in that book, and then we come to Ecclesiastes. I would be uh, even so bold to say that many of you probably have, a, have avoided this book in your, your personal study. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many are familiar with the book. You may know a verse or two from the book of Ecclesiastes. The, the closing verses are the crowning verses of the, the book, and you might know then what is the duty of man, the, the fear of the Lord, his creator, and, uh, in the days of his youth. But, uh, and there are other verses there. In fact, cults like the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, because in, at one point Solomon says when a person dies, they're just like an animal. I'm paraphrasing here. They just die. And uh, some established their whole doctrine of uh, the soul sleep from Solomon's surmising there. But as always, we need to rightly divide the word and put things in their proper place. And so with the Lord's help, we certainly want to do that this morning. He must have liked the word vanity because he uses it some 38 times. You'll see that word over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes as he wrote about life here on earth or as he puts it under the sun. That phrase you'll see in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, is life as we mortals here on earth. Vanity, of course, we usually think of a dresser or someone who is uh, uh, proud about their looks or over care careful about their looks. But literally, it means, and, and, and rightfully so, uh, those when you think about it in that way, is something useless or empty or futile, uh, vapor-like, uh, that which quickly fades away and leaves nothing behind. And so, all of our primping and, and putting on of a colognes and talc and perfume and makeup it, it goes away it doesn't last a long time we have to continually go to the vanity table or the mirror or whatever but uh, he describes it as the morning mist or as the dew that until the sun hits it or the frost and it's quickly gone or cotton candy would be something that would fall into that category as something very temporary not much uh, substance to it and it's quickly vanished. If you examine life purely from the human perspective uh, under the sun, if you all we can see is from this perspective, it does look like it's useless, doesn't it? I mean, we go to funerals, we go to, uh, we, we, we are all kinds of heartbreaking things on a daily basis, news that comes to us, grievous things, health problems, the aging process, dealing with that and with loved ones, our parents, uh, all those interconnecting relationships, we could just say, this is useless. It's silly. There's, what difference does it make? Their sin is so strong, and, and people are so people, <laughs> so human, and so circumstances are, are as they are. If you do examine life only from that perspective, if you don't have God's perspective in it, that's what it will look like. And many people have come to the conclusion, well, it's not just worth living. I think I'll end it. If I'm just an, I'm, I, as an animal, when I die, I'll die as an animal. There's no life after death. 
And this is all, I don't want to wait to the finality of it. Why drag it out? I'll just end my life. I'm not saying you should, but if that's all you have, and all you can see is from this perspective, that is a perspective that some people have. A Jewish writer once described life as a blister on top of a tumor that, with a boil on top of that. And that's horrible, isn't it? What a perspective. What a definition. The poet Carl Sandburg compared life to an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. Well, in British literature, in, in school, you may have read Matthew Arnold's poem, Rugby Chapel, and Warren Wearsby in his B series in his introduction to the Ecclesiastes gives this, and he says where he describes life like this, most men eddy about here and there, eat and drink, chatter, love, and hate, gather and squander, are raised aloft, are hurled in the dust, striving blindly, achieving nothing, and then they die. Well, that's pessimistic as well. But you see a lot of literature and music and art is that way. You see the so-called modern art and, or, or other expressions of, of the human mind and imagination that seems tormented or that there's no use. The meaninglessness of life is sometimes expressed in the arts. Well, those are pessimistic views of life. In fact, they're hopeless and depressing. But we come to the scriptures and we find good news. In fact, we find all the news, don't we? The good, the bad, the ugly, but the eternal. In John chapter 10, verse 10, we hear the Lord Jesus say, I am come that they may have life, not just exist. If you don't have the Lord, you're just existing. You are marking time and you will die. Not as an animal, however. That's the great lie that Satan tells. There's an eternity after this life. But Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, real life, not in reason for living. And even in suffering that they may live and know that there's a God in heaven and there's a purpose in what I'm allowing in their lives. And that they may have it more abundantly. What an assurance. I've come not just that you'll have life or not just to save you for an eternal state in heaven, but that you might have life more abundantly down here. Does that mean that you're going to have all everything on your wish list or you'll be able to accomplish all on your bucket list, as they say? That's not what he's saying. He's saying in that verse that I've come that you might have life, not only in this life but the life to come, but that because of knowing the Lord and having the resources that God has given to us, we can live above the circumstances and in spite of the circumstances, a life of blessing and usefulness. It is the Lord in all things that makes the difference. We read Paul's encouraging statement in, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight: Be ye therefore steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, there seems to be a dichotomy here or, or, or a contradiction. If you just read Ecclesiastes in and of itself without comparing Scripture with Scripture, which, by the way, we always are to compare Scripture with with scripture you never take a verse out of context or on the basis of that one verse without comparing what the rest of the bible says about the same topic and so if you just read ecclesiastes it is as much as the word of god as john 10 10 that i just read to you but you must know that ecclesiastes the lord is allowing the human author solomon record his questions his meandering his wandering away from truth and stream of consciousness, if you will, his thoughts as he was pursuing other avenues other than the Lord. You must read the whole book 
before you come to the conclusion of it. Now, sometimes if you're reading a book, especially fiction, you might jump over to the end and figure out how it ends and then go on. But, or you might stop before it. the book may become so boring, you might stop and you might not find out the whole thing. But in Ecclesiastes, it's absolutely mandatory that you read all of it so that you'll understand it and then interpret it in the light of what the entire scripture says about the issues that Solomon brings up in that book. When we live life to the glory of God and in the will of God, it is not lived in vain. And that verse in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight says that your labor not be in vain. There is a way to live life in the midst of all of the struggle and the, the senseless, it seems, things. We know that as a child of God, nothing is senseless. Now, beating your head in the wall, trying to be the most successful, wealthiest, health, uh, uh, most handsome, most popular, you know, the, the standards that the world gives, that is senseless, isn't it? Because why? There's always someone more successful, healthy, wealthier, more popular, better. In whatever area that you're in, you won't be the, the top, the ceiling of that. And so if life is just about achieving status here or a certain amount, of, so what if you had a list of 10 things, I want to have a Ph.D., I want to do this by the time I'm 30. What if you reach all those? As many people do. Then what? Is that it? Is that what you were aiming for? Did it deliver? And so the, the scripture tells us when we live life to the glory of God and in the will of God, it is not lived in vain. Now, Satan wants us to think that it is, but it is not. Even in the work of the ministry as a pastor, as a Christian worker, I have to remind myself that, that I will not see the result of every message, every Sunday school lesson, every counseling session immediately in effect in that person's or those people's lives. I would like to from a human perspective, but this is... Uh, the Lord's spirit work and it's sowing and fertilizing and praying and reaping and in due time there will be a harvest and so this is what Solomon is teaching in this often misunderstood and neglected book that in the Lord rightly focused living for him your labor is not in vain other than that yes it is it is empty the, the richest one. This is coming from the richest man on earth. Some of us were just talking before Sunday school about the wealth of Solomon, the chariots, the horses, the imported thing. He had everything that could be had at his disposal. He could send ships throughout the world to bring it, and he brought the treasures of other countries to uh, to Israel and the, the the wealth that he had and amassed and the building that he built. I've heard construction experts and engineers and architects say that you could not uh, copy the, 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 the temple exactly as, as Solomon did because of the extravagant wealth. There would be billions of dollars in gold and silver and so forth. But this is the man who has it all as far as the world is concerned. And he's saying when he's not thinking right, in his sin, life is useless all is vain. We might as well just die. First of all, I want us to look at the author of the book. I've already told you who it is, but let's go back and look at who we're talking about. Now, you may say, well, Lamb, that's kind of bold, because if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that nowhere is Solomon's name mentioned. Now, how do we know, then, who is the author? You just you, you say Solomon's the author, and, and then you go and say that his name is not mentioned in the book. How can we connect those dots? Throughout the book, the descriptions he gives of himself and his experiences in life 
indicate that it is written by Solomon. I mean, there are very few people who uh, the things I've just described to you could be attributed to. The wealth this man, all the wealth, all the, the privilege that, that Solomon had. He calls himself, though, in uh, verses 1 and uh, 12 of chapter 1, the son of David. If you look there in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that does narrow it down somewhat, doesn't it? Then in verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. So when you connect these pieces of information, we see that it was indeed Solomon. He calls himself the son of David. He says that he has been king, he's king of Jerusalem. And he claimed to have great wealth and wisdom in verse 13. I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. Who is connected with wisdom singularly in the scripture apart from our Lord but Solomon concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. Not many people could say that. And although he's, he's exaggerating somewhat, he has broad experience. He has had the, the leading rulers of the nations come to him. Remember the Queen of Sheba? She's, she came to see if it was true that he had such wealth and he was so great. And what did she say? Well, the half has not been told. It's no exaggeration. In fact, there's more to it than, than what you've heard. When you, uh, in chapter 2, you see in verse 1 he, he, through 11, he describes his great wealth, and we'll go to that at some other point. But when you study First Kings 4 and 10, that God's offer to give Solomon whatever he wanted, what is it the thing he asked for? He, he asked God to give him uh, great wisdom, and the Lord did. But he also, as a test gave him great wealth. Now, most of us would call great wealth, what word would we use being the good Christians that we are? If you get a bonus next week that you weren't expecting, or an inheritance, or some unexpected thing, you'd, you'd call everybody, maybe, or somebody, or your husband or wife or some friend, guess what? I, what a blessing! A blessing has happened to me today. And while the Lord uh, gives good gifts to his children... I would tell you that prosperity and wealth is always in the form of a test to his children. The children of Israel were never their most holy when they were the most, had the most uh, gadgets and things. And neither are we. Now, that's why, uh, obviously, the Lord in his wisdom keeps most of us without those things because he knows what would ruin us, wouldn't he? Doesn't he? We say, Lord, bless me and keep me where you want me to be. And he does. He takes us up on that. If, and in some cases, he does put people in high positions and notable places and with great power or authority, such as Daniel or, or Joseph or Solomon as king, the Lord allows them to be there. And sometimes he does entrust uh, some with more intelligence, let's say, or other things than, than other people. But as always, he's to be yielded to the Lord. And so often they're not. A real smart person has the capacity to think that they're the, the cause of that smartness, you know? Or a real handsome person, maybe take pride in that. Or a real uh, athletically uh, proud, someone with athletic prowess. Or some business person who's made a lot of money uh, may be, tend to think, this is just because I'm just good at it, and I just happen to be, it's me. <laughs> you know, this is, this is me. But we know for the child of God that God allows or withholds all things in our lives for a purpose. And with every situation that comes our way, good or bad, we should say, Lord, show me what I need to know about this. 
how to handle this situation, how to live in the confines of your will in this situation. Now, if it's bad, we know to do that, if we call it bad. If we all of a sudden have a, um, a pronouncement from a doctor or a, a, a loss of a job, we go to the Lord, don't we? Oh, Lord, teach me. I want to walk straight and plain and help me to know it. But somehow, uh, uh, what we would call a blessing, where we have a tendency not to ask the Lord about that. We just take it and, you know, it's ours and, you know, this is great. And, and, and not have the idea that, you know, God has allowed this for a purpose. Now, what am I supposed to do with it? See, that makes all the difference in the world. That's living wisely. So Solomon asked for wisdom, and that's a spiritual request. And God gave him the wisdom of how to deal with the kingdom. Remember, uh, the, the famous test is when the two women who claimed the same child came to Solomon, and uh, he said, okay, cut it in half, and you both have part of the child. And the, the, the one mother said, well, I could, she refused to do that. Well, the, Solomon knew whose it was. The true mother would never let the child be cut in half. And so that's just a little, little snippet into because the king of that day was the, the Supreme Court justice as well. He, can, he ruled over all these kinds of, of matters and cases. Uh, and so he, he, he had great wealth. Twelve times in the, in the book, the author mentions the king, and he makes several references to the problems of the kingdom. Remember that King Solomon ruled over a great nation that required a large army uh, to be constantly maintained, as well as a, a intricate uh, government offices and bureaucracy and all those things that are alluded to here. He carried on expensive building programs. Uh, he had a luxurious court uh, that rivaled any kingdom or court in the world of the day. And somebody had to manage this lavish lifestyle, and somebody had to pay for it as well. And Solomon solved the problem by ignoring the original boundaries of the 12 tribes of Israel. And instead, he divided the nation into 12 tax districts. That sounds like a king, doesn't it, or someone who's interested in getting more money. And, you know, the, the kingdom was originally divided among the inheritance of the 12 tribes. Solomon turns this into 12 tax districts, each one managed by an overseer, we learn from 1 Kings chapter 4. And over time, this system evolved into an, a corrupt and oppressive ordeal, as you can imagine. It ha- would have the tendency to, to be corrupt, uh, corrupted, and uh, that's what happened. And after Solomon died in Second Chronicles 10, the people begged for relief from this heavy taxation. And as you study Ecclesiastes, you sense this background arising of exploitation and oppression. If there's a lavish kingdom and treasures from afar, somehow or another that's going to have to be underwritten. And that's, uh, that's the danger in what happened to place. Solomon started his reign as an humble servant of the Lord. And I, we see this so often. It may be even in Christian service, some young man or who may be greatly gifted in preaching and, and rises, you know, just immediately, or some young person, even in, in, in the Lord's work. And that's why the scripture says, not a novice. A novice is not an age, but it is experience and uh, a spirituality. And it must be first proved always, no matter if it's someone young or not. But uh, position and power and ability is often 
uh, though we see it as a blessing and, and a gift, can be corrupting. That's why we, all of us have to daily just submit ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't have enough sense to get in out of the rain if you don't tell me. Show me what to do and how to do it. Keep me right. Don't let me get out of your will. Do you pray like that, Lord? Don't let me be as the mule of the horse. You rein me in. Whatever it takes, fence me into your will and don't let me be able to climb over it. Isn't that what he tells us to pray? Lead me not into temptation, but what? Deliver me from evil. Sometimes we're our own greatest tempter. We're our own greatest enemy. So, Lord, you know me. You know Chris Lamb better than I do. Deal with me. In 1 Kings chapter 3, the, the Bible says, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Can you imagine? Let's just back up. Chris, ask what I would... If, if the Lord came to you and asked you that today, today, ask what I would give you, what would it be? And Solomon immediately knew. There's, there, in the, the scripture, there's no pause. Solomon said that thou... Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy. Solomon knew his background, didn't he? He knew the mercy and grace that, that God showed toward his father. According as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept from, for him this great kindness. And that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. The Lord didn't have to allow a son. He told David he would, but God is sovereign. He could put whoever he wanted to. He did not allow the son of, um, of, of, of uh, Saul to be king, right? He chose David. He subverted that. So God is sovereign. He can choose who he wants to be king. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. You've taken my father home, and you've allowed me to be here in this place. And I'm but a little child. Now, Solomon wasn't a little child, but he's using that to say, I don't have sense enough to do this. I need divine ability to oversee this kingdom. I know not how to go out or come in. And that's a big confession because most of us, oh, I can, I can handle this. Do you want to be president of the company? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be glad to take the, the, the head of the business corporation or the, the largest church in town, whatever it is. Yeah, I can do that without thinking. Are you sure? And he says, I don't know how to come or go. I don't know how to, to do this. And let's face it, Solomon had been raised at court. He had been trained, humanly speaking, for that, and yet he had sense enough to know it's going to take something more than what I've gotten in my education to do this job. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? See, he knows that the spiritual needs of his, the people are great. And the speech pleased the Lord. If you want to know what kind of praying pleases the Lord, that pray, pleased the Lord. That's good to know. That helps us to know how to pray. Lord, I need to, for you to do for me what only you can do. That's what Solomon is saying. I need to, to guide these people. They're your people. And so it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing and has not asked for long life. A lot of people would say, Well, okay, you want me to give you something? Let me live a long and healthy life. He didn't ask for that. Neither hast thou asked riches for thyself nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy works. 
I have given thee a wise and understanding heart. So let's just pause there. Solomon's wisdom was a granted wisdom. And if you see things spiritually discerning, guess who allowed you to see that? First Corinthians tells us that, right? These things are spiritually discerned. The natural mind cannot understand the things of God. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to know the treasures of God, just as it took a gift from the Lord for Solomon to know these things. So that there, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like before thee. This is what God says about Solomon. Nobody's going to be as, has ever been as wise as you're going to be. Neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I've also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, and that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes, and this is the condition, though, and Solomon did not keep up to this condition, to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy day. Someone will quickly say, but David messed up. He wasn't what he ought to be. The thing that distinguishes David and why we can speak of him in those glowing terms, and by the way, God sees us as justified believers. He sees us as we will be one day in heaven, not as we are right now. The reason these things can be said about David is that David always had a repenting heart, didn't he? The reason he was called a man after God's own heart, he always repented and kept that that place of repentance. As he grew older, Solomon's heart grew hard. And he turned away from the Lord to the, the false gods, if you can imagine. And we'd have to sit here today and say, who has been so privileged as Solomon? We've just said it, haven't we? No one is wise before. No one is gifted. No one is wealthy. No one, we could put all these descriptions of him, and yet it, his heart was turned away from the Lord. Now, there'd be those who'd say, well, it was God's, it was the wealth well, money is neutral. It's, it's neither here nor there. It's your attitude toward it. You know, position, being the president or the head of something, that's just a position. It's the attachment that you put to it, how you interpret it, that, and, and let it be, whether you use it or it uses you. Possessions are neutral. And so, but Solomon's heart grew hard. He turned away from the Lord and he, he, he turned to the false gods of his wives from, from foreign land. He began to make political marriages. This was very common during that time. We're not justifying the, the number of the wives. Most of these wives in his harems he never saw, never had anything to do with. But he would marry them to, for this king of this nation, the chief of that nation, all for political purposes, for political alliances. Uh, the knowledge and having wisdom is one thing, but putting it into practice is quite a bit of another thing. All of us have to struggle with that. Solomon's many marriages, his multiplicity of marriages were not for love. They were, as I've mentioned, political marriages. And that has been the case in royal marriages down through the years, hasn't it? And has he made alliances with the nations that he conquered and with uh, these alliances with Israel? They were like contracts that people signed, maybe with unsavory people or unsavory businesses and just to get the business deal on the line, just to, so we can move in that direction. It's no different, this, that kind of thing that, that Solomon was doing. In fact, many of the things Solomon did that seemed to be glory to Israel actually were contrary to the word of God, that being one of them. No amount of money, no prestige, no popularity or political peace treaties could stop God's divine judgment. 
the famous Scottish preacher Alexander White said that the secret worm was gnawing all the time in the royal staff upon which Solomon leaned. The latter years of Solomon's rule were miserable, a nightmare, a train wreck. God removed his hand of blessing. You see, the sin of presumption is a sin that is very common to God's people. And I want to warn us of it this morning as we study this portion of Scripture. The psalmist prays about that. Deliver me from from presumptuous sins. What is the sin of presumption? The sin of presumption, while the unsaved presumptuously sin in that they may discount that there's a God in heaven and they don't care or whatever. And so that's quite a different thing. But there is a sin of presumption among God's people is that because I am saved, because I'm the Lord's, because I know better, I know these things, that somehow the Lord will give me a a special favor and I can sin and get by with it. Do you understand? The sin of presumption. Do you know in the Levitical sacrifices there was no sacrifice for presumptuous sins? And Solomon begins to presume upon his blessings. Oh, I'm king. Nobody's taking me out. It's almost like Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit. They didn't die immediately, did they? Maybe all oh, this is not such a big deal after all. I mean, they wake up one morning, have a sore hip, and they look and see wrinkles. They begin slowly, slowly, slowly to see that something's happening, but we're not dead. Solomon's wealth did not immediately vanish when he made the first political marriage. When he began to delve into other religions and have discussions with his wives, what they believed and adopted, allowed them to set up an image here or a temple there, and that kind of thing. It begins little, as all these things do, don't they? They don't just overnight. Solomon began to think, well, you know what? God is not so exact after all. And I'm, I've got this wealth. He's not taking the wealth from me. I'm still king I'm relatively peace with the, my uh, other nations around me. I can pretty much do what I want to do, and there's not going to be much fallout from it. We see in, in, in the, the scriptures in, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, I want to turn there because this is an import, important um, aside uh, to what we're talking about here, or part of it, 1 Kings chapter 11. We, we see there where Solomon's heart was turned away. King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and the Hittites, all the sworn enemies of God. But the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come into to you. In other words, you should not marry them. So this was a clear um, disregard of the clear command of God, wasn't it? For surely they will turn away. God told them why. They'll turn your hearts away after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after the other gods. His heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of his father, David, his father was. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. These were unspeakable deities. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David did his, his father. He had a divided heart. Solomon built a high place. This is a false 
place of worship and despicable acts, not just offering a, a sacrifice or incense. There was the, the sexual immorality that went along with it. In the hill that is before Jerusalem and from Moloch, you remember Moloch? Moloch would be heated up with white hot hands and babies placed there as a sacrifice, fried to death. My, he's messed up, we'd say, isn't he? For the abomination of the children of Amnon, I'm not saying that Solomon actually took part in the ceremony, but he allowed it to take place. And likewise did he for all of his strange wives. Whatever their religion was, okay. We've done it for one, we'll do it for another, bring it in, which burnt incense and sacrificed to their God. Look at verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. These are special, miraculous appearances. This is not just Solomon was so uniquely, singularly blessed to have God actually come to him in that way and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. And we could go on. You could ride, read the rest of the, of the chapter to see Solomon's demise. The only reason God left Solomon on the throne, you, you might be wondering, is is it would be normal to do so. Well, why didn't God do something? We often ask ourselves that question, don't we? Why does the Lord allow that person to stay in that position or for evil to continue? The only reason God left Solomon on the throne was because of his father, David. God swore to David that he would give him the throne and that his descendants would reign there. And after Solomon's death, the nation will divide. And the rest of Old Testament history will be with a divided nation, the nations of Judah and Israel. The godly nation, if you will, will be Judah. And the, the, the ones that always had wicked kings would be Israel. Ecclesiastes is the kind of book a person writes toward the end of life, looking back over the life experiences, the lessons they have learned, if you read a memoir for someone early in life, and then if they write another one at the end of life, there'll be two different books, won't they? It seems as if Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs and the, the book of the Song of Solomon during the years when he'd faithfully followed the Lord. It's obvious that, that those are truths that only the Lord can give to a spiritual heart. And, that, and then after that, after years of decay, spiritual decay, uh, we come to Ecclesiastes. This ought to turn your blood to ice water because no child of God is exempt from the presumption that Solomon that sees Solomon's heart and mind. You see, it would be presumptuous for us to say, well, some people would read Ecclesiastes and say, well, if Solomon could get by with it, then I'll just kick up my heels. I'm saved by grace. I'll just live any way I want to. And at the end of my life, I'll get right with God. Or, or even if I don't, I'm saved. You see, that's a, that's a lie from Satan. The only real assurance that we have of our, our salvation, of course, is the word of God and the spirit bearing witness. But the spirit does not bear witness to a heart that's bent on sinning. So that the person, even if genuinely converted... And let me say from the outset, a person living like Solomon gives all the signs of someone who's not. But even if they are, they have no assurance of it. What we're, we're reading Solomon, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he sounds like a lost man because he's living like a lost man. And I would tell you, if you asked Solomon, he would have had no assurance that there was a true God in heaven or where his soul was going. What a horrible life to live. So for all 
uh, practical purposes from this side of it, Solomon really didn't know. And I would warn you, the sin of presumption is because you may have some intellectual facts about the Bible, know some doctrines, and then assume you can live a certain way apart from the grace of God, and you're sadly mistaken. God deals deals sovereignly with each people individually and differently. It would be, do not make the mistake of saying, I will emulate Solomon and it will all work out for me. That's the, that's the sin of presumption as well. The sin of presumption says, I'm greatly blessed and so I can just do what I want to. I'm saved so I can do what I want to. I can live however I want to because of the teaching of the word of God. That is largely the philosophy of an unregenerate heart. And we would seriously, from this side of it, and I'm not God, I can't look into a heart, would, would urge that person to repentance and faith in, in the Lord, to turn from their, their sins but in Solomon's case, we have the, the, the luxury of knowing the whole story because the Lord has allowed us to. But that's not the case in every person's life. And you should never look at it from a presumptuous background. There's no record that King Solomon repented and returned to the Lord, but his message in Ecclesiastes suggests he did. Some would strongly say the closing verses of the chapter do. However, you can come to a position that's the right thing to do without actually doing it. Does that make sense? You could write those last verses knowing all that you know and having the experience without truly coming to that place in your heart and mind. He wrote Proverbs from the viewpoint of a wise teacher. He writes the Song of Solomon uh, from the viewpoint of one who knows the deep things of God. But when he writes Ecclesiastes, he called himself the preacher. The Hebrew word is the title given to an official speaker who calls an assembly. And the Greek word for assembly is ecclesia and gives the English title for the book Ecclesiastes. So do you see that connect? The Greek word for assembly is, uh, is ecclesia. And uh, we, we get the word Ecclesiastes uh, from that. The Hebrew word carries with it more than just the idea of addressing an, an assembly like I'm doing this morning, but of debating with oneself. And we are allowed by the Holy Spirit, you know, perhaps Solomon didn't know anybody would ever read these words. This may be a diary that he's keeping or at the end of his life to try to clear his head, but the Holy Spirit is allowing him and guiding him to write it, and he he may not know the full ramifications. I'm not not saying that when Solomon sat down, he said, well, this will be read 3,000 years from now, so I better get it right. He's just writing what he's thinking, what he's experiencing, and the Holy Spirit is guiding it and, and preserving it for us to read as well. So it's a very private book in that regard. The Hebrew carries with it much more than the idea of addressing, but debating with oneself. If you were to write out your thoughts, it would seem like this sometimes, you know. If you went back and read a journal, if you keep a journal or a period of time of your life, you'd be seeing, you'd be vacillate from one thing to the next. Today you wake up feeling this way. Tomorrow it's according to the circumstances around you. And after a while, if you read something, I, I have written a lot in my life, from my teen, from my conversion until now, if I, if I go back and read some of those early things, it's just like, this is the craziest person on earth. This person doesn't have a clue. And uh, I don't know why I keep the things, you know. I, I guess I do because I think somebody, one of my descendants may want to, but then there's, some days I think I'll burn it all, you know. I know of a lady who inherited her aunt's 
all of her journals, her aunt had written something every day of her, her life since she was able to. And the, the heir was telling me that, that, that his mother that came into the, the recipient of those burned her aunt's journals. Maybe she didn't want anybody to read what she thought. And so, but that's, this is Solomon's diary, if you will. I'm, I'm kind of putting uh, some holy imagination here. And this is what he thinks. And one day he says one thing, and the next, it's, there seems to be some contradiction. But this is a man who's away from the Lord, living like he wants to live. And God allows us to see what that looks like. It's not a pretty sight. It's not comforting. There are jarring texts in the book of Ecclesiastes that we just shake our heads and say, my. The Hebrew word helps us see that. He would present a topic and then discuss it from several viewpoints. Like, you know, if you've ever been at a group of people, they think they're smart, you know, they have philosophy and all. Maybe around the water cooler at break and somebody says, well, this is the way I see it. And they give their opinion. And somebody gives their opinion and it's just a bunch of hogwash at the end of it all, you know, if, if the Lord's not in the midst of it. And that's how Solomon does. He gives this topic and he argues. He takes the devil's advocate the other side and he, he argues all these uh, and then he comes to some practical conclusions. So that's the author, I'm convinced, is, is Solomon. Well, next I want us to look at the aim of the book. What is this kind of a book trying to accomplish? There's not a book in the Bible that's not there on, for, for, for uh, divine reason. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is what? Profitable. Okay, so when we come to any portion of Scripture, even Ecclesiastes, okay, this is for me. And God wants me to learn from it. What is it that I'm to learn from it? First of all, it's God's word. So that's, that in itself is miraculous. It has weight with it. But Solomon gives the key to Ecclesiastes right at the front door. I like when an author does that. I, don't, I like when I know what they're writing about. I always read, when I take a book, I always read, of course, the front. I go and read the jacket, you know, all that it says on the, the dust jacket. I look at the very the background of the author, whatever they give me about the author. I turn to the front and see what date it was published, who published it, the little information. You get some little biographical information about the author there, the, their dates of birth and death sometimes there. And I do all kinds of things, the table of contents, what is all going to be in there. I go to the index and look at who he references. If there are any footnotes, I look at all that, especially if it's a technical book or a theological book or a book on a biography of someone. And do all of that before I read chapter 1 to find out if I want to read chapter 1. Because sometimes after all that, I say, this is, I don't, I don't. I can look at the, if it's in the theological realms, I can look at the publisher sometime and say, I doubt very seriously there's going to be anything that I need from that. I'm not being prideful. I just, there's only so much time and only so much reading I can do. I have to be judicious in what I allow to, to, to be added to the pile of things I'm working on. What is the, he, he tells us right at the beginning, look in verse 2. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. <laughs> all right. And then in verse 3, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? What's it really all about? What difference does it make? Solomon is asking. Just in case we miss it, he hangs the key at the back door too. Don't you like that? In chapter 12 and verse 8, he says, Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. So we know from beginning to end that's the mindset of the author that everything is nothing and nothing is anything and all is useless and it just has that kind of disposition of life. I am sure that, that you would not want to have been a dinner guest at the palace during this period of Solomon's life. I don't think you'd have made a very interesting dinner partner, you know, at the dinner table to you or to come across him in, in, your, in his life at this point. 
one word he uses often, over and over again, vanity. Vanity is whatever disappears quickly, leaves nothing behind, and does not satisfy, which is what most people are living for and looking for in this life. The pleasures of life, the scripture tells us, sin may be pleasurable, but what? But for just a second, just an instant, and then, then what? You see, there's more than that. You are more than that. You are a soul. The inner man is more important than the outer man. The outer man is perishing, is wasting away. The inner man is growing and will go out through all of eternity. But we feed and pamper and take care of to an inordinate degree the outer man, knowing all the while that its vanity is going to dust and to ashes, to the exclusion in many cases of the inner man. Some people never consider the inner man or rarely consider. Even some of God's people rarely tend to the inner man and they're malnourished and they're no wonder their spiritual problems. Someone has said that vanity is whatever you have left after you break a soap bubble. <laughs> I was look, watching our grandchildren at a birthday party recently. They blow the bubbles and they chase after them. And one or two of them even stick out their tongue and try to catch them. I don't know where they got that from, but that soap bubble didn't last very long, did it? What do you have after that? That's vanity. It doesn't matter if Solomon is considering his wealth or his works, his building programs. Think about it. This man, he's been able to build the temple. But that in and of itself didn't deliver, did it? It was a building built. You could build the largest building on earth, some notable building, and after that, as someone has, there's somebody who's put up the largest building on earth. Then what? You see, just doing something, building something, even great and notable, is not, doesn't deliver, doesn't take care of the soul. Chapter 2, verse 11, all is vanity. And then he adds vexation of spirit. It just bothers us in the inner man. Another phrase he uses 29 times is under the sun. We've already alluded to that. And also under the heavens. Well, we'll pause here in our introduction to Ecclesiastes. As you can see, we have a lot of work to do here. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. How clear and plain. We pray that you'd bless it to our hearts. May we learn these eternal lessons that you want us to know in Jesus' name. Amen.